Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good. Hey, if you've got a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Mark chapter 12, where we've got one final question in this very long Tuesday we've been looking at in the life of Jesus. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're in this series through the um, final week of Jesus's life leading up to his crucifixion outside the city of Jerusalem. And we're at this point in the story where um, Jesus's opponents have decided that they're going to kill him. Uh, Jesus, he is uh, too threatening to their grip on power and their way of doing things. And so they've decided Jesus has to go. And um, there's a problem for them, though. Uh, Jesus was quite popular. And so they knew, uh, man, if we kill Jesus, we're going to have an uprising on our hands. And, and, and an uprising, changing the way the world worked, that's the whole thing they were trying to prevent. And so what Jesus' opponents do is they come up with this plan to ask him a series of questions to try to trap him, to try to get him to say something that would make the crowd go, oh, man, you believe that? You're for that? No, I'm out and walk away. And so two weeks ago, we saw them ask him this question about politics. Uh, the Bible's totally unrelatable, right? Politics was super controversial back then, so hard to relate today. Um, and then last week, we looked at this question about the afterlife. What happens after we die? Today, uh, we've got another hot button question, and that is a question about morality. Let's look at it. Mark chapter 12, we're going to pick it up in verse 38. It says, or excuse me, verse 28. It says this, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. He's hearing the end of the conversation from last week. So he hears them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, that's Jesus, answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, um, this can be kind of like last week where that question may sound a little obscure to us because we're so removed from the situation in which it was asked. So let me give you a little bit of the background so you can feel it because I think this is a question we're still asking today. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, what we would now call our Old Testament, there are 613 commands from God. 613. Um, 613. Everything from thou shalt not eat bacon to um, thou shalt have one spouse and no more than that. Like th this covers the whole gambit of moral law. Now 613, um, that's a lot of commandments. And depending on your personality, that might be difficult to remember, let alone actually obey, right? And so what the rabbis would do is they would distinguish between the weightier parts of the law and the less weighty parts of the law. They'd say, hey, it's all God's word. They were not Sadducees who only liked select portions of God's word. They believed it was all God's word. But they said, hey, if, if we really want to minister to a large group of people, we've got to tell them what's the major issues, what's the minor issues. We've got to distinguish between them. And the question of which commandments were the majors, that was a huge debate in Jesus' day. And so when the scribe comes and asks him, hey, which commandment is the most important? He's asking Jesus to weigh in on that debate. What he's saying is, if I can put it in modern language, Jesus, what do you think is the greatest moral issue of our day? Is that a question we're still asking today? Three of you are. Awesome. Yeah, I, I think the question of morality of how we should be living in the world to make the world a more beautiful place continues to be important to us, Christian or not. Like, I, I haven't met a human that's not ultimately interested in that question. How should we be living to make the world a more beautiful place? And look, there's 
a lot of philosophies and ideas about that question out there. What we're going to be looking at today is how Jesus answers that question. Are you ready? All right, let's keep going. Verse 29, we're going to get Jesus' answer. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Um, I know I've said this every week, but that's an amazing answer. Um, and, and look, it's not just me. I have a friend who calls this text his Rosetta Stone. Like, um, what he means by that is he finds Jesus' answer so compelling and clarifying in this text um, that it's become for him this grid through which he translates and understands everything else in life. And I think he's on to something by calling this his Rosetta Stone. Um, because I think in this text here, Jesus' answer, it really demonstrates what's unique and what's beautiful about the Christian faith. And so if you want a starting point for what's Jesus about, I think this text is a great place to begin. Let's look at his answer. So what's the greatest moral issue of our day? Jesus begins by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, this is uh, a famous passage known as the Shema. That's the first Hebrew word in Deuteronomy 6. You see it in our English translation that here, O Israel, here is the word Shema. Um, and, and this was a really the monotheistic creed that really distinguished the Jewish people from all of their neighbors who believed in many gods. This was the creed. They would remind themselves of our faith is unique. While all the nations around us say that there are many gods, no, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema has told us there is one God, one creator over everything. And, and, and you might say, hey, that's not a command. Um, if you're an English major, you might say that's uh, an indicative, not an imperative. For the rest of you, you're like, I don't know those words. That's okay. The point is, hero Israel, the Lord is one, is not in and of itself a command, but it's the truth that sets up the command. Listen again to what Jesus says. He says, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now here's the command. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all of your mind. Love. That's the command. It's a relational word. And, and in light of the truth that Deuteronomy 6 begins with, I want you to think about how profound that is. Um, to say that the God who created the cosmos, that rules sovereign over kings and empires and nations and history, that God, the one who sits in heaven and reigns on high, he wants a relationship with me. He's going to say love, this relational word. The first command is going to be that the creator of the cosmos wants a relationship with us. Like, doesn't that almost sound a little bit arrogant? Like, if I told you, hey, Tom Brady called me up, he's considering retirement, and he wanted my opinion, 
Like, that'd be a huge deal. Tom hasn't called me, by the way. I don't think he should do it, but, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But here's the thing. This is saying the creator of Tom Brady, the creator of the creators of football, the greatest of all time, the king of kings and the lord of lords, wants a relationship with you. No other religion in the ancient world would have dared to claim something like this. Um, and in fact, there's a poem in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 8, you can read it this week, where a shepherd looks up at the stars, and he, he's taking in the expanse of the cosmos. And he says, God, what are humans that you would be mindful of us? Like, why would the creator of all of that want a relationship with me? I'm finite. I'm weak. I'm, I, I can't compare to that. And yet, this is at the heart of the Christian faith, that the creator of all things, the main thing he wants is a relationship with you. He wants you to love him with your whole self, with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Every part of you, not just Sunday mornings, all week long, in everything you do, God wants to know you, walk with you, and be in a relationship with you. This, this is crazy, but it's at, the, it's at the heart of the Christian faith. According to Jesus, you and I were made for a relationship with God, and if that relationship is not right, nothing else will work right in life. Um, I think we so often get this backwards where we come to church and we're like, hey, I need to fix this problem in my marriage. I need to fix this problem at my work. I have all these issues I want to talk about. And if we can figure those out, if I have time left over, then sure, I'll pray more. I'll read my Bible more. And we've got the issue. According to Jesus, we've got it completely backwards. That The reason our marriages, our work, our life isn't right it's ultimately because our relationship with God isn't right. Because if, if we're made for a relationship with God and that relationship's not right, do you see the logic? You then have to ask everything else in your life to be a God. And look, I'm sure your spouse or your kids or your friends or your job or your house, whatever it is that you've been thinking about this week, I'm sure they're awesome, but they make crummy gods. They do. No matter how cute your kids are, they make really, really bad gods. This is the first thing. If this relationship is not right, nothing else in your life is going to work right. Jesus says this is the first commandment. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. He says this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. And he quotes from Leviticus 19.18, which says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the question we should be asking as good readers that are reading our Bible seriously is if the scribe asked him for one commandment, why did Jesus give him two? What? Why is that? Was Jesus hard of hearing and he thought he said two? Do the Greek words sound really similar or Aramaic that they're probably speaking? Um, no, that's ridiculous. Um, Jesus gave him two I would submit to you because you cannot separate the two. Um, you, you, you can't separate the first and the second commandment. You cannot say, I love God, but not love those that are made in his image. In fact, that is why a young disciple of Jesus who's standing there listening to this whole conversation will later write in 1 John 4.20, anyone who says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Because if he doesn't love his brother whom he has seen, how can he claim to love God whom he's never seen if his brother's made in the image of God? Do you see the connection here? You can't claim to love God if you don't love those who are made in his image. 
And that's why these two go together. So Jesus, he says, if you're going to ask me about one command, maybe it's because Jesus is a preacher. If you're going to ask me for one command, I'll give you two. Two for the price of one. The greatest commandment is love God and love your neighbor. At the end of the day, what he is saying is the most important thing in life is love. Loving God and loving others. That is what your life is really about. And so if you would give your life to these two things, loving God and loving those that are made in his image, according to Jesus, you would be a happier person and the world would be a more beautiful place. And, and that's an amazing answer. I return to what I said. I think this is an amazing answer. I think my buddy's onto something by calling this his Rosetta Stone because I don't know how you can argue with that. I don't know who's going to go, you know what, I think we have too much love in the world. Like, no thank you. Um, I don't... Like, can you just imagine for a minute with me, can you imagine if uh, people just walked around and they were just focused on how to love God and other people all day? Like, j just imagine that world for a moment. Can you imagine what driving and traffic would be like? Like, oh no, you go in front of me. No, you go in front of me. Like, it actually might be slower, but I think it'd be a lot happier. Uh, can you imagine what your workplace would be like or your home would be like? I mean, can you imagine what social media would be like? I don't think you'd even need Twitter at that point if we were just loving each other. But um, seriously, think about it. If we were focused on loving God and loving our neighbor, this would be the end of hatred. This would be the end of envy and using other people and abusing other people. This would be the end of injustice. This would be the end of war. Does anybody find that vision compelling? I don't know a single person who would look at that and say, no thanks, I'm happy with all the fighting. I like the rage. I like the vitriol. Like this is the world that Jesus is telling us exists. And not only exists, he says, this is the world you are made for. You and I, we are made to love. At the core of our beings, the most important thing about us is we are made to love God and love others. And if those relationships aren't right, we're not ready to talk about anything else in life. This is a compelling vision. Um, I've yet to meet the person that would say to this, um, nah, I don't like it. I think that's a little too lovey, a little too nice. We need a little more um, hatred and chaos in the world. And so the question then that I think we need to ask is if Jesus' framework for morality gives us the world that we're all longing for, then why isn't the world busting down our doors to get in here and learn how to live life from us? I mean, why is it that, in a, especially in our day, when our culture is kind of obsessed with this idea of love, like I didn't live through the hippie movement, I think this would have been popular back then, I think it's making a resurgence in its popularity now, and so why is it in a world that's so divided, that's crying out for love, that in that world people are flocking away from the church, not towards the church of Jesus Christ, if Jesus is the one who taught this ethic. I think you have to wrestle with that question. I think it's irresponsible of us to say, well, that's because they're all sinners and don't love God. Like, are we doing anything to confuse them about what our God is like. I think we have to ask an honest question because as I was sitting with it this week, I was like, Jesus, what you're saying, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. And all my non-Christian friends I know would sign on to that statement. So what's the disconnect? 
And as I've been wrestling with this um, for several months now, um, I think here's what's going on. Tell me if you can relate to this. I think that maybe, rather than embracing Jesus' teaching here, is a new way to live our lives, is new priorities for our lives, is a new moral and ethical system on which to bank our lives, I think we more often respond like the scribe in this story, who says, yeah, Jesus, that sounds really nice. Love God and love your neighbor. And he uses all this removed language, not love uh, the Lord my God, like the Shema says, you know, to love the Lord your God and, you know... um, to love one's neighbor. It's all very theoretical. It's all very removed from his life. And unlike all the people that interact with Jesus that place their faith in him and follow him, we don't see that in this scribe here. He just responds to him and says, that sounds really nice, Jesus. Love God and love your neighbor. Ah, That is a great answer. But he goes no further than mental assent. And did you notice Jesus' response? Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Do you hear what he's saying? Um, You are not far off means you are where in terms of the kingdom. Are you inside or outside? You're outside. This guy's one of the religious elites in Israel. You see how that's kind of shocking? That this man comes to Jesus to put him on trial, to test him, to discredit him in front of the people. That he's one of the religious elites. And after talking to Jesus, Jesus says, hey, if you keep talking like that, you might become a Christian. You're not far off. You're you're on the right path, but you got to go past mental ascent. This has got to become the faith that actually drives your life. And, And so no wonder they didn't ask him any more questions. I love that Mark ends with that just in case we missed it. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. After Jesus says to the religious leader, you might just make it someday if you keep talking like that. This is brutal honesty. This is a type of brutal honesty that everyone else was like, okay, maybe they had more questions lined up. They're like, nope, this is it. I don't want him to call me out too. This is brutal honesty to say to this man, you are not far off from the kingdom of God. But we say this all the time, that um, growth in life happens when we can get honest with God and with one another. And so let's have a little brutal honesty this morning, just like Jesus did with this man. I'm going to say something controversial. Love is hard, right? Yeah. Like if you're newly married, you're like, no, this is easy. Give it some time. Love is hard. But here's the thing. What we're seeing in Jesus' teaching is we were made to love. So there's a tension here. We were made for this. That's why I believe this teaching is so universally compelling. This is why the Beatles will write songs about this, even though they didn't believe in Jesus. They couldn't get away from the inescapability of the beauty of this idea that life is about love. See, we were made to love, but the problem is we're also broken by sin. And so the very thing we were made for becomes difficult for us now. And so there's a tension. I, I don't think anyone can deny that, that we love love, but it's, it's hard to actually do it in practice. And here's what I think happens in that tension. I think what we tend to do is we tend to, rather than press into love because that's hard, I think we tend to just default back to the morality we had before we met Jesus because it's a lot easier for us. It's a lot more natural for us. It's far less exciting 
but I think it's our default. And there's really only two ways humans have ever answered the morality question apart from Jesus, either legalism or relativism. Now, those answers can come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. Those can look religious or irreligious, but I'm telling you, at the end of the day, I think that we are all either legalist or relativist apart from Jesus. And so let's talk about each of those, see if you might agree, see what God might have for you today. Um, let's talk first about legalists, because we don't talk about these in church very often. Um, a legalist is someone who builds their morality on a set of rules. And, and so what they'll do is they'll build their morality on a set of rules. This is right, this is wrong. And the people that follow the rules are the good people. The people that break the rules are the bad people. This is classic legalism. Um, and the Pharisees are a classic example of this. Um, the, these guys, unlike everyone else, had no problem with the 613 commandments. Um, these guys, Jesus will say in another place, tithe on their spice rack. So these guys were diligent to obey every little line in the law. These guys, they're like, bring it on, 613, that's not enough. They actually added to the law. God says you need to remember the Sabbath. We're going to add a bunch of rules to that just to make sure you remember it. Some of you are like, these guys are no fun. No, they're not fun. Some of you are like, hey, I'm wired like that. Stop talking about me like that. We love you here. Um, but here, here's the problem with all of this. Here's why this isn't fun. The problem with this is this mistakes the means for the ends. Legalism mistakes the means for the ends. Jesus just said that the entire law is about teaching us how to love. Not only is loving God and loving our neighbor the greatest commandments, but what he will add in Matthew's parallel account of this story is that the entire law and prophets, so that's the entire Hebrew Bible, the entire Old Testament, hangs upon these two commandments. So what he's saying is every command, every thou shall, every thou shalt not, is ultimately designed to teach you how to love. The entire Old Testament is designed to teach you how to do these two things. And so what that means is the law, while very important, which the New Testament will consistently affirm, Paul in Romans has some of the greatest things to say about how the law is good. The law is good, but it's not the point. It's a, it's a means to get you to the point. And actually Galatians 3, I believe it's 23 or 24, will say the law is a tutor to lead you to Christ. That God has always designed, had more in mind for us than what the letter of the law says. That Christ came and he sent his spirit to lead us into the fullness of that. But the law is good, but it's, it's a means of getting us to the end. It's not the destination. Love is the destination. And so what this means is it's possible to check all of the boxes on your moral code. It's possible to check all the boxes on the Old Testament law and say, uh, did I give to the poor? Check. Did I have more than one spouse? Nope, good. Check. And you can go down the list and do all of the things that the law commands. It's possible to do all of that, check every single box, and yet be a cruel, harsh, unloving person as you do them. And it's not a win. If you check off the letter of the law, but you miss the spirit and the intent and the destination for it, you've wasted your time. 
Isn't that the whole point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Well, he'll say, you've heard it said, don't murder. And all of you are like, hey, nailed it, haven't murdered, feeling pretty good about myself. And then Jesus was like, well, if you called your brother an idiot, you've kind of missed the point. Because it's coming from the same heart. It's the same unloving attitude that would strike out with our tongue or strike out with a weapon. But both of those are the problem. This is the entire Sermon on the Mount where Jesus say, hey, you've heard it said this, but if you've done this, you've missed the point, and it's not an improvement. If everyone's walking around uh, not killing each other, but like constantly murdering one another in our thoughts and our attitudes, that's not a fun society. And in 2022, we can say amen. See, the law was never meant to be the end. It was always meant to lead us into love. And when you trade something dynamic, like love for a set of rules, you lose the ability to walk in the fullness of life that God designed you for. You not only miss out on the purpose, but then when you don't have a rule for something, you just become an amoral jerk. And I think the last two years has shown us that we didn't have rules for what to do in a pandemic. And if, and if you live your life based on rules, not on the ethic of love, then I think, man, the last couple of years might have exposed the limits of that way of living. And some of you right now, you're like, go get them, pastor. Okay, well, let's talk about you. Because I'm an equal opportunity offender. And legalism is not the only way to miss out on what Jesus is teaching here. It is one way. It's a way that's common in the church. That's why I lead out with that. But I don't think it's even the most common way to miss out on this teaching today. I think a far more dangerous, a far more common way to miss this teaching is through moral relativism. What moral relativism is, is this is the belief that there is no objective standard of right and wrong. And so, we need to be willing to adjust our understanding of morality for the sake of love. Now, it's hard to see this one as an error because it uses the language of love. It's tricky like that. But the problem with this is it completely misunderstands what love is. So it's using the word love, but this is like that old movie. You keep using that word, I'm not sure you know what that means. Oh, you guys really got that one. Okay, I'm learning my references here. Um, and and let, me, let me say this. There's, we've got to get outside of our cultural moment. Sometimes it's helpful to zoom out and see what someone that's not breathing in the same cultural air as we are might say about something to help us see our day more clearly. Um, and so uh, let me tell you about an African pastor writing in the 4th century that I think can be a lot of help to us. Um, there's a man named Augustine of Hippo writing in the 4th century. He has written some of the most famous works on love. Particularly, he has a sermon on 1 John chapter 4 that I quoted earlier. That's an incredible sermon that I think we all it should be mandatory reading for every human today. Um, I obviously don't have the power to do that, but I did put it in the worship guide if you want to take me up on it. You can read the sermon. If you can get through the old English it got translated into, it's an incredible sermon. Some of you are looking at me like, I'm not going to do that. Okay, here's the point of his sermon. What Augustine, oh, oh, let me say this. You've probably heard it quoted. I'm going to make one more effort to get you to read this sermon. You've probably heard it. Have you ever heard, love and do as you please? Yeah, that comes from this sermon. 
Some of you are like, I might read it now. Okay, well, let me tell you about the punchline anyway, because um, what people will do with that quote um, is I've heard that quoted often, um, love and do as you please. Uh, I've had people say that to me, see, as long as I'm loving, whatever I do must be moral. And I'm like, have you actually read the sermon? Because that's the exact opposite of what Augustine of Hippo was teaching in that sermon. So, so let me give you the punchline, because I know you're not going to read it, but it's very interesting. Augustine's point is, broken sinners do not understand what love is. Um, and, and I would add to that, we're not only broken sinners, we're also finite. So even in Genesis 2, before the fall, we're supposed to depend on God's definition of what's love and what's not, because we are finite, we're not the creator, we need to grow in wisdom, we need God to depend. But Augustine really hits the sin note, I'll add the finite note. But his point is this, because we are both finite and sinful, that we don't understand what love really is. And so he uses this illustration of a boy stealer and a father. And what he says is, um, a boy stealer, basically this would be what we would call today a kidnapper. Someone trying to um, steal a child and to sell them into slavery. What he'll say is the boy stealer may talk very sweetly to a child may lure him with enticing words. My grandmother would add, he may offer you candy. Um, and what Augustine says is a, a father, uh, a loving father, would um, discipline his child if his child does something foolish or reckless that would endanger his good or the good of others. That a, a loving father would discipline his child. He might speak harshly so that the child understands the seriousness of the situation. Uh, my grandfather might add, he might spank the child. Some of you are more progressive than that. But, but here's, the, here's the point Augustine's making. Um, to the child, the kidnapper might look a lot more loving. He's offering me candy. He affirms everything I do, never says anything mean to me. And yet, daddy, if, if I do something dangerous speak to me like that was a bad thing like and, and and so augustine's whole point is in this child's world the kidnapper might look a lot more loving than the father but who's the one actually loving that child the father the father is the one loving that child and so what he's saying is love because we are broken may sometimes feel unloving to us and but I, I will say this, love does not adjust itself to our brokenness. Love meets us in our brokenness to lead us towards wholeness. Isn't that what we see in Jesus? Jesus doesn't come into the world to affirm everything we do and say, way to go, love what you're doing with the place. Jesus comes into the world and says, I love you, I'm for you, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to deal with all of the darkness you have brought into this place, I'm going to rise again and say, change your mind about how you're living, because that'll lead to death, but if you want to follow me, I'll take away your death and lead you to life. Love is strong, it pulls people out of the depths of hell and brings them into a kingdom of light. But this idea of moral relativism, this fluffy idea that all we can do is affirm everything that everyone else already believes, it's weak. It's not loving. It's incapable of taking the people that we love anywhere. 
And look, it might look a little bit nicer than legalism in 2022, but I'm telling you, it's just about as useful at leading towards a beautiful, whole life that is fuller and fuller and alive and alive and freer and freer and freer. Cheap sentimentality cannot do that. Rules removed from a relationship cannot do that. Only love can lead from death to life. And so the invitation of Jesus this morning in this text, the invitation of Jesus is to something greater than fluffy relativism or stale legalism. The invitation is to follow our crucified and risen Savior in a way of love that can take death and turn it into life, that can take what is broken and bring wholeness. It's an invitation into a powerful, transformative way of living that I believe deep down our world desperately wants, even if we don't understand it sometimes. And so the question that I think this asks of us then is if that's the invitation of Jesus, the question that we all need to answer this morning then is will we be like the scribe who says, that sounds nice, Jesus, but we don't take it seriously, we walk out of here, we forget all about it, or will we give our lives to learning to live this way? And, and I ask that as a serious question because I believe that if we all made it our goal to say, with every action, I want to do the loving thing here. I want to love like Jesus here. I want to bring life where there is death here. I want to celebrate what's good. And I want to help take what is broken and bring it towards the light. I want to be a life giver, not a life taker. If we could all say that, then I, I think we could turn the city upside down. I, I, I mean that. We have for decades here talked about seeing Diablo Valley become known as King's Valley. And whether you find that wording cheesy or not, the heart behind it, that we want to see the love, grace, mercy, and life of Jesus wash over this valley has not changed and will not change as long as I'm here. And I believe that this can happen if we take Jesus' teaching here seriously. I believe that this is at the heart of it. This is our opportunity in a day of division where people are divided over politics and masks, where people are increasingly seeing cruelty and harshness is a virtue to be lifted high. In that day, church, I think we could spark a revolution if we took Jesus seriously here. To say we're not going to give into the criticism and the critical spirit of our day. We're not going to give in to demonizing other humans because we know other humans are not our real enemy. We're going to give our lives to love. I think if we did that, we could spark a revolution in this community. And I will say this, that is how the church of Jesus Christ has historically transformed societies throughout history. Um, and I told you I'm reading a book on the history of the Jesus movement. I had so many examples I could give you and probably bore you with because you don't like history as much as me. So I'll give you one from the text. Um, I said earlier that there's a young disciple named John watching this whole thing happen. This is the guy who, let's just review John's resume. This is the guy who, um, when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and a town rejects him, he says to Jesus, hey Jesus, you want me to call fire down from heaven and kill them all because they were mean to you? That's John. 
He's known as the son of thunder. This is the guy who just a couple of chapters ago was shooing away the kids, being like, get out of here, get out, Jesus doesn't have time for you. And then in the very next breath was like, so can I sit at your right hand of power and glory? That's the guy we're talking about here. This is the guy who in a couple of chapters, when his best friend is in the darkest moment of his life, will betray him and abandon him and do anything but love him when he needed it the most. That's the guy, John, that in the decades following would become known as the apostle of love. And he would go on to write the letter known as 1 John, which is known today as one of the greatest works on love of any faith background, of any tradition. It is lifted high as an example of humanity fully alive. That John, the one that wanted to call fire down, that was shooing away kids and just worried about himself and betrayed his best friend, that's the guy that goes on to write the love epistle and to be known as the love guy. And so don't you dare say to me, this can't be me. I can't major in this. I'm too old. I've lived too long. There's no hope left for me. Or, man, I'm too young and I'm just too passionate. I can't give myself to love. I see too much injustice. i got to beat people down. Don't you dare say this can't be you. Because this young, passionate guy in John went from a son of thunder to the apostle of love. This can happen to any of us. We just have to experience what John experienced. And and I want to let John speak for himself about what he experienced because this is the truth on which your entire life can turn. We'll find this in 1 John chapter 4. Chapter I actually quoted the ending of earlier. Earlier in the chapter, he writes this. Beloved. I, I love that right there. Are you somebody that just talks to people like that? Beloved. Might be a little creepy today, but what's the equivalent Are you a loving person that that would sound natural on your lips or some modern version of that? He's writing to a church that had real sin issues if you read the letter. This is beloved. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God does not love, excuse me, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What John is saying is that you and I will be able to love like this only when we realize how much God has loved us. Do you realize that? Do you know that God loves you? I I, I don't mean the future version of you that doesn't struggle. I don't mean the younger version of you that could do more and was more active. I 
I mean you right now sitting in the pew watching online. Do you know that God loves you right now where you're at with the struggle you're currently going through, with the mess that he sees and all? Do you know that God looks at you and loves you? Do you know that when you and I were at our worst, far before we ever had a thought of God, God had a thought of you and said, Jesus, you got to get down there and save him. And he sent his only son to die a slave's death on a cross, to take on God's righteous wrath for all of our unloving attitudes, for all of the evil our lack of love brings into the world, that God sent Jesus to come and take that darkness onto himself. Did you know that God's love is strong? That there's nothing greater than the love of God. There's no sin in your life. There's no brokenness in your past that's too big that he can't handle. But on the cross, he took it all upon himself so that he could rise again and call you beloved. See, I think there's some of you who you've always intellectually checked that box, but you've never really believed it's for you. You've always thought this is for everybody else. And maybe this morning is the morning you need to hear the Holy Spirit say to you, this is for you. I love you. I'm for you. It doesn't matter what you did this week. Some of you have believed that gospel and you've forgotten this week, like every one of us has done. Because here's the thing about humans we're, we're leaky vessels. When love is poured into us, it tends to leak out. We need to keep being loved, we need to keep being reminded. This is why we preach the gospel every week here. This is why I keep saying, do I know your love? Because I keep hearing silence. And I'm like, I hope the Holy Spirit's doing something in your hearts. Because you're loved, church. And did you catch what he said at the end there? He says, we grow in our understanding of God's love. Not in isolation. But it's as we get in the game and do the messy work of seeking to love others that the love of God is perfected in us. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. You and I were made for this. And, and sin is real, so we're not going to be perfect at it, church. I don't want to disappoint you. You're going to sin against each other this week. But that's the point of the gospel. That in spite of all of our sin, we are beloved children of God. And when that truth is alive in us, I think that truth is the spark that can light the fire of the revolution of living this truth out in a way that would transform our valley in this day. Is that what you want for your life? Okay, then let's pray. God, you amaze me. I don't know why you looked down from heaven and saw me or any other human in this room and thought, that one's worthy of love. But I thank you that he did. I thank you that you sent your son to show your love, that your love wouldn't be theory or something we read about in a book, but that your love has entered into our world. That your love is a historical reality, that your love is alive in this place this morning as your spirit is at work here. Um, thank you for being you. Thank you for loving the unlovely. Thank you for alone doing what can make us lovely again. Um, Father, I ask that 
in your love for us, you'd send your Holy Spirit to minister to each and every one of us right where we need it this morning. Where we've given ourselves to legalism or relativism, would you uh, get our desires up for a greater way of living? And would you empower us to day by day know more of your love that would keep us moving down that track and pick us up every time we fail? God, my great desire for my life and for my brothers and sisters is that we would be a people marked by your love, that we would never get over the fact that you saved us, that you loved us, and it would be that giddy excitement and joy that would spill over in love for you and love for others around us. Would you work that a little more deeply in us this morning? Would you increase our desire to live out this teaching? In the beautiful name of Jesus, I ask.